Welcome to Regulated and Relational, a bi-monthly podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. Today, Julie and Ginger are joined by Becky Haas. Becky is a nationally known trauma-informed training expert and talks with us about the role that school resource officers have in helping propel this trauma-informed movement forward in schools. Let's listen in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Julie Beam. And I'm Ginger Healy. And as always, we're excited to talk with you about all things trauma-informed. Today, we have a guest in the studio. Becky Haas has come to talk with us about trauma-informed schools and policing. Her background includes working with resource officers and administrators, as well as training all kinds of other professionals, both in schools and also in healthcare and law enforcement and the judicial system and other community organizations. Ginger, can you introduce us to Becky? Oh, I'd love to introduce you to Becky. Becky has a really long bio, and so I won't get to every little detail, but I do want to share with you that she is an international advocate and trainer. The work she led in Northeast Tennessee was recognized by the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration in 2018 as a model for other cities to follow. In 2019, she co-authored the Building a Trauma-Informed System of Care Toolkit for the Tennessee Department of Children's Services, and that toolkit has been featured in PACES Connection, Growing Resilient Communities, and has been recommended as a practical tool at Johns Hopkins. And then from 2018 to 2020, Becky served as the Trauma-Informed Administrator for a regional healthcare system, and prior to that, she was the Director of a Crime Prevention Program for the Johnson City Police Department, which she is credited for reducing drug-related crime in one neighborhood by 40% and creating a first probation program of its kind in Tennessee. I'm hoping we have time to touch on that because that is so impressive to me. But under her leadership, her crime prevention efforts have been noticed and she has been awarded the Outstanding Crime Prevention Program of the Year for the Southern Region by the National Criminal Justice Association. She's the author of several sector-specific professional development trainings and has received two statewide accreditations in Tennessee. She's co-authored many different things and has really moved this movement forward She co-founded the Global Resiliency Accelerator, which now meets quarterly and has grown to having participants in 14 countries. So your police work, which I can't wait to really talk about because we haven't really touched on that in this podcast yet, is groundbreaking. It's saving lives and it's just something that we haven't, like I mentioned, touched on yet. So I can't wait to talk about that. But I think where I want to begin is asking you, how did you even begin to get into this line of work? Because you've got a niche there that is, you know, has needed to be filled. Well, thank you, Ginger. You know, I never know what to share with people in a bio. I think I should tell people to say, this is Becky Haas, and she's been busy. I have, in my career, uh, 45 years or so, I've always had jobs that had a training element. I'm actually an ordained minister. I worked two decades in the church that I now have attended 40-some years, and I do women's conferences in the faith community realm, but I 
left working inside that setting to going to work at East Tennessee State University. And I did training for police in car seat safety for many years. And again, there was that training component. And then the grant that I had for that went away very quickly. After 10 years, we had that grant. And in one year, when we went to renew it, it was not going to be renewed by the state. So I had a little period that I was in between work, and then I saw an opportunity in my local police department. They were hiring someone who would write a JAG grant, a criminal justice program grant, for $800,000, and it would reduce drug-related and violent crime and recidivism through using community partners. And I look back now at how all this just providentially kind of came together because honestly ginger and julie at the end of the day i'm your neighbor i'm like the lady in walmart in yoga pants and in about two hours you will be able to find me there and the fact that you are interested in this story and that i have it to share so i was hired by the police department a rigorous interviewing narrowed from 20 to 12 to 4 and i was hired and wrote the grant we were awarded it and my job as a director was in two neighborhoods that had high drug related and violent crime i had to bring together anyone that would talk about what were crime factors and how could we fix it so we got housing authority community gardens library boys club probation parole healthcare, and i told the chief do these groups never talk to each other? Mm -hmm. Because when we brought them all in the room, you know, it was amazing what people had to offer that others didn't know about. So long story short, we ended up coming up with 19 programs that 35 agencies did. We did reduce crime in one neighborhood by 40%. We did untraditional things like put in a community garden and it brought healthy traffic there. I found out doing ride-alongs that the neighbors felt safe during the day, but they didn't feel safe at night. And one night on a ride-along, I was with the officer and we were at a domestic violence call and he said, Becky, don't get out of the squad car until I make sure it's safe. Then he said, if you do, you see that one street light on the block, I want you to stand there. And when I got out, I saw how dark the neighborhood was. So we ended up writing a city ordinance about uh, new street light ordinances. We put 14 street lights in that neighborhood and we just did some amazing things together. So in 2014, We were awarded the National Criminal Justice Association Award. I went to Breckenridge and accepted it from President Obama's cabinet, uh, Eric Holder, Carol Mason. And I told the prestigious group that day, I said, I'm just the band leader. You should meet the band, you know. And then in that journey in 2014, my police chief asked me to write a grant for a family justice center. Tennessee ranks very high. If a woman is killed in a homicide in Tennessee, it's the third highest state, or it was at the time, it would be due to domestic. Bill Haslam was our governor. He wanted 10 family justice centers. So I helped write a grant and our police department got one. We were the seventh to have a family justice center in our state. And it was in that journey that I heard Dr. Folletti in California at the National Family Justice Center Conference talk about the ACES study 
And I had heard a doctor in town mention it one day. And he said, Becky, it's the most important study you've never heard of. Mm -hmm. And then I heard Dr. Folletti. And then 30 days later, I was in Florida with my probation program manager under the grant. And we heard Joan Galise of the National Center of Trauma-Informed Care at the time Mm -hmm. was funded by SAMHSA. And after going as high as the U.S. Department of Justice winning accolades for our program of reducing drug-related and violent crime and recidivism, and yet here I'm hearing two people tell me within 30 days that if you answer yes to six of the 10 ACE questions, you're 46 times more likely to be an IV drug user. Ladies, I felt I had heard the cure for cancer Mm -hmm. and my town was a cancer epicenter. And I felt if I came home and said nothing to anyone that I would literally be held responsible. So long story short, I partnered with a psychology professor at ETSU. Both of us, faith is important in our life. We had no money to do it. We didn't know if anyone would hear. We still had our day job. I had 19 programs. She's a tenured faculty. So we literally prayed over it and said, you know what? If this goes anywhere. And then three years later, 4,000 professionals trained, SAMHSA recognized our work as a national model. And after that, I was recruited into healthcare as their first trauma-informed administrator. And back to your introduction, Ginger, if that crime prevention program would have only involved police, I wouldn't be talking to you today. But I had teachers, I had Head Start, I had housing authority. So once I saw ACEs was something that we needed to mitigate the effects of it, my curiosity was how to create practitioners. And so before I recruited Dr. Clements, my friend, I created a big notebook like grant writers have with a binder and I put 35 tabs and I just studied for a few months mostly ACEs connection. If I saw somebody doing a program in a school or Robin Sanger and the vice mayor down in Florida, I would call them or email them. So I filled my notebook full. So my keynote talk, I'll say I created the notebook. It's not as steamy as the movie, but it got the job done. (laughs) And I was convinced that there was an application of using a trauma lens in all those settings. And I had no idea I would do anything ever that would be recognized or whatever. I just knew my town needed it. And I started putting it in judge speak, teacher speak, police speak, and creating practitioners. And so here we are today. Here we are. That's incredible. It gives me chills because we too, although ATN is not a faith-based organization, there are a lot of us who have that level too. So it's like anytime you hear something three times in a row, you're like, wait a minute, there was the aces for you. You still are training a variety of different sectors at this point. The one in particular that we want to talk to you about has to do with education because that's one of our strong suits as well, and specifically around combining that with what resource officers within the schools need to know. And we all know that anything to do with resource officers and school safety is a hot topic right now, right? So I don't even know how to start on this topic, but talk to us a little bit about how you train resource officers and school administrators and school safety that's trauma-informed and what your thoughts are there. Okay, 
Good question. Well, in my journey in this, now we always know when we're having a conversation about trauma, you know, that we want to always give a speed bump for our listeners that sometimes content is maybe intensive. It may be some Mm -hmm. of our stories. So here I was busy as a bee training and writing trainings in my town while I worked for police. And the last group I had not ever trained was police. I was a bit intimidated, even though I had been a police trainer doing car seat safety. It wasn't that, but I felt the topic might be some pushback. Mm -hmm. So one day, this is is a little graphic. One day I heard a 911 call of a four-year-old watching their mother being beaten. And what that four-year-old never thought about was by trying to save mommy's life when the police come, now my daddy will go to jail. Mm. And in my mind, as a mother and a grandmother, I thought, you know, I sure wish I could pack along with police on that call a counselor for the child or a social worker. But I realized that my best intervention that day to that child was a police officer and that police officers needed to know what a difference they could make. Because when they step in the room on a domestic violence call, they're the only ones that can focus the lens for the child that they did the right thing. This wasn't their fault. Mm -hmm. And that if they ever feel unsafe. So that was the day that I decided I had to write a training for police. So in my research about were there any practices out there? I feel like I'm really just the amplifier. Uh, My wonderful husband, who I've been married to almost 38 years, he's a little older and he actually played my high school prom, but I didn't know him then. But he's a musician and he can do a good Mustang Sally on his Fender guitar. If you know that, you're old enough to remember that. Mm -hmm. But it's the amplifier that makes a difference. And so I started researching and found, lo and behold, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the National School Resource, all the police peers, they knew about ACEs. They had some things about it. In 2012, International Association of Chiefs of Police partnered with Yale University and wrote a toolkit for officers on how to reduce trauma on scene in age-appropriate ways for infant, all-around child development, for toddlers. But I thought, nobody's talking about this. So I filled my training with peer-led information. The National Child Traumatic Stress Network, they have a brief on trauma-informed policing. So my training... It's been post-certified in the state of Tennessee for four years now. Last year, I had an article about it published in the International Association of Chiefs of Police magazine, which is a global policing authority on increasing empathy and policing through trauma-informed policing. And in my research to put together training and from working for police six and a half years, I knew that 80% of a police officer's job is somewhat boring and a lot like social work. And 15 to 20% of it is a horror, is adrenaline and a rush. And then I did research on the type of training police get And much to my surprise, I found that 80% of the training is on use of force, 
on driving techniques. And so the amount of time on what they're doing, they had very little training on. And police are like every other kind of professional. They want to do their job well. And so I felt that what we could do is just help police see, you know, I love this quote, that if the only tool you have is a hammer, You look at every problem as a nail. Mm -hmm. So when I go in to train police, I'm just telling them, here's what we're doing, bringing you some new tools. And so I wrote a training and now I have a train the trainer for it. I've trained Oklahoma City Police, Delaware State Police a year ago, Delaware Department of Education was creating trauma sensitive schools. And they realized their 100 school resource officers knew nothing about trauma. So I went in and did a training for them. Mm -hmm. And so police, like I said, like any other professional, they want to do their job well. And I think we don't need to back away from approaching our justice officials. Schools are the perfect voice to go in and see the chief or see the sheriff, because every school and city chief, every county sheriff, School safety is a high, high priority. And so educational leadership are a great voice to come in and say, do you all know know, about trauma? So that's kind of how that got started. You know, since the tragedies of Columbine and Sandy Hook and other schools, every president since those things have increased funding for police presence. It's the fastest growing area of policing there is. And looking at a report that was put out in 2019 called Cops and No Counselors, some studies were done about 1.7 million students are in schools that have police officers, but no counselors. 3 million students are in schools that have police, but no nurses. Mm -hmm. 6 million students are in schools that have police, no psychologists. 10 million students are in schools that have police, and no social workers. And then a great piece that came from the National Center for Educational Statistics, they had an article in 2018 that said that 41% of public school teachers say discipline is high on the list of what they work through in the day. And many of our school teachers have more access to a police officer than other type of professionals that are needed. And so what my approach to this is, then let's make it a good fit. Mm -hmm. Let's make it a good fit. Let's let police officers understand about child development. And I've got articles from the National Association of School Psychologists in 2021. They had uh, perspectives from SROs that were able to get trauma training. And this is what the officer said. Trauma-informed approaches are often not taught to school security, despite their close work with students. School security professionals believe that being empowered with this knowledge has the potential to influence how they work with students in the future. And then then I have testimonials on my website of police officers that say this was effective. This was tools we needed. And so I want to really encourage your great audience, Julie and Ginger, to not shy away from bringing 
the police and school resource officers into this conversation, even in a greater way. When I'm training schools, I use and have been through training, trust-based relationship, TBRI, mm-hmm. Texas Christian University, also Star Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. And in Star Commonwealth's training, they talk about the circle of courage which promotes four platforms. And the number one platform is belonging. And if we think about belonging, you know, police officers are often mentors in a school. You know, they realize that their role, other than being about school safety, but yet many of them say, we know we're mentoring kids, we're helping with fourth grade math and that kind of a thing. And so if we help officers understand how important it is that they can help the school culture create this sense of belonging and that no student is slipping through the cracks, that we're really creating safer schools when we can get bus drivers and custodians on board. After the Uvalde shooting, I don't know if you all saw, Star Commonwealth put out a white paper called the Violence in School White Paper. It's excellent. I'm going to read a statement from it. It says, despite the attention and horror that a school shooting creates, statistically, this type of crime is rare. Often a person doing the killing finishes the event by committing suicide. And in this white paper, Star Commonwealth says this, In these cases, it becomes necessary to conduct a psychological autopsy, interviewing those people with whom the shooter had contact throughout their life and trying to piece together factors that may have aggravated or mitigated the likelihood of a traumatic experience. And in that white paper, they go on to look all the way back to 1950 and looking at these shootings and one where they can have some sort of a psychological autopsy. And the number one thing is the shooters were bullied, were isolated, were bullied at home. And when I was just a few weeks ago in Denver speaking at the National School Resource Officer Conference, the day that I was there, I thought, well, I'm going to just go to workshops and everything. And the keynote speaker that morning was a very distinguished gentleman, and he did a debriefing of the Parkland shooting. Mm. And ladies, I honestly wished I hadn't been in that room. I wished I hadn't sat in the front because I'm not a police officer. Mm -hmm. I'm a mother and a grandmother, though I work for police. My eyes have not, but they had videos and things that I had to process later, Mm -hmm. but they had video from the young man that was the shooter. And several hours before he went into that school, heavily armed, he said, I am tired of being kicked around, being called a dumbass. I will show you today who really are the dumbasses. And so that's what this white paper is bringing out. Mm -hmm. And in another study, I read that 49% of school shooters have some relationship with the school. So we need Mm -hmm. to do that connection assignment. We need to put up every student's name in the cafeteria after hours and have the bus drivers, the lunch folks, the custodians, the coaches, the police officers march through and say, who is a child in this school that no one is connecting to? And we need to have all hands on deck to create 
this sense of belonging because then we see narcissistic behavior in the individuals that are bullied saying now people deserve to die or private logic, you know? So I feel like by helping officers understand trauma, but put it in that context of how many of the shooters actually were involved in that school. People knew that child's name, but that they have this high rate of bullying and that kind of behavior from the home. And we know in our ACEs training, that one nurturing, caring yeah, adult. One caring adult. Different. You've hit on so many things, but what keeps coming out and has come out hopefully through many episodes of our podcast, but exactly what you're saying is that relationship yep. piece, that understanding that you are seen, you are heard, you are felt, and we want that to come through the home, but it doesn't always come through the home. So in that case, it can come through so many different places like the school, but not just the teacher. You have mentioned lunch workers and paraprofessionals and bus drivers and custodial staff. That relationship has the opportunity to be grown in so many places. I know at my son's school just recently before school got out for the summer, it was their D.A.R.E. graduation. And it was very apparent to me that that D.A.R.E. officer knew the students. He was joking around with them. He called them by name. He had relationship with so many of those kids. And, you know, we all know that the studies show that it was just like what you were doing, that the crime rate goes down when those relationships are in place. So I love that you talked about that cross sector of education for all those who come in contact with a child. We talk about it all the time, but I just don't think we can talk about it enough. And if you think about, you know, a few years ago in my state, One night on the nightly news was a terrible traffic accident that had happened around the Chattanooga area, and it apparently had been foggy, and it involved several tractor trailers. 26 vehicles were involved, and that night on the news, they were interviewing a young man, a good Samaritan, the first one upon that terrible wreck that was not involved in it. And in the interview, he was telling about how some cars were on fire, and he was running from car to car you know, pulling people to safety. And, you know, not anyone in those cars said, hold on, mister, we're waiting for the fire department. Mm -hmm. No, they were so glad he came. And that's the way I look at putting this information. I call it handing you the glasses. And when you put those trauma lens on, Mm -hmm. now maybe we can have the police officers or the custodians, you know, Muhammad Ali, I don't know if a lot of people are aware of this, but a quote from him, he said, in every school and neighborhood are children without hope. No child is hopeless. Each was put here for a purpose. And these are just children who have not yet discovered their purpose and helping them find that purpose is our mission. And what a lot of people don't know is that he was kind of a street kid And it was a cop on his road that helped him to get into boxing. And so, yeah. So like that good Samaritan, you know, I think about the placement of AEDs in my lifetime. My father 
Um, he died of a heart attack at 72 alone. My mom had gone to the store. And so I gave a lot of thought to AEDs after daddy died of a heart attack, that it could have saved his life, prolonged his life. And that in our lifetime, people have bought this sophisticated medical equipment and put it in gymnasiums and airports and hotels. And they train the secretary, they train the night clerk. And so thousands of lives are saved by non-medical roles. And right. that's what our school resource officers, and that's what we know in this shift now, we need our counselors, we need behavioral health. But experts that I talk to feel that maybe 50 to 60% of trauma can be mitigated through the kindness of our communities and our schools and other places that people connect. I agree. And that's why we're so glad that you are an amplifier. I mean, ATN also considers ourselves an amplifier Definitely. in a lot of those ways to make sure that message gets out because it really is a message for everybody. Anybody can be that one caring adult, right? A question that popped into my mind as you were talking was how do resource officers feel about this? Like when you go in and start training them with this, do you get pushback or do you get them going, this is exactly what I needed. And, you know, I, I now understand, or do you get a combination? of both? Good question. No, I had once in the paper at home, someone wrote hug a thug. I was a hug a thug. We were going soft on crime, but in my training with police, and I've been training police four years now, and even some large departments, Oklahoma City's 1200, and you can find this on my website, BeckyHoss.com, but here's what the interim chief when I was there said, highly recommend trauma-informed policing training. It was informative and compelling Trauma-informed policing will make first responders more effective by putting very practical tools in their toolbox. So my experience is in our setting of training officers, if we make it clear that trauma is not a magic wand to say there's no accountability. And I would say you face that when you try to bring this approach to schools are like, what? No school discipline. But here is the message I repeat over and over. It's accountability with support. There's still consequences, but now we can do it in a supportive way and we help children on scene. So a good friend of mine, chief in Chattanooga, he's retired now, but he consulted with me and they started a program called cop care bags. And in every patrol car in that very large city, there's a bag of fidgets and little coloring things and mm -hmm. slinkies. Mm -hmm. And so officers are trained. And when we're on a scene with a car crash and tending to grandma, now a two-year-old in the back seat, what are we doing in simple game-like fashion? We're reducing trauma on scene. And honestly, I have not ever had an officer to me say this was a waste of time. Are you seeing any challenges that we can talk about how to mitigate you know, within the schools with resource officers? I think the main thing is if you're equipped, and that's one reason I came to your conference last year or submitted a proposal. Mm -hmm. I wanted educators to hear, you are one group that has the ear of your police. Mm -hmm. Because I worked for police six and a half years, okay? Mm -hmm. And if our school superintendent wants a meeting with the chief, that school superintendent 
along with the mayor. That's a high priority meeting. And I wanted them to know you have their ear. And so many states that I work with, my own state, our new governor, Governor Bill Lee, he implemented a handle with care law. So I worked with Tennessee police, Tennessee Association of Chiefs of Police during 2020 to record my training. And they have a handle with care website. So I recorded a three-hour training for teachers, three-hour for police. So if the community's wanting to launch that, they can just go online and listen to that. So why I wanted to meet your group is because you're the perfect group to approach your police officers. They're very interested in you because their children go to your schools and school safety is a high priority. I think that is so valuable. I don't know that I've heard it said and I'm so that means I know it hasn't been said enough. I love that you brought that out. And I don't think educators ever think about that. They don't think about their level of influence in the rest of the community. They can take an active role in all kinds of community or, you know, like cross sector sort of reach, but specifically to law enforcement. I don't think that they've, I've never heard an educator say that to me in other words. And I just want people, I think having worked for police, I feel people can feel standoffish Mm -hmm. to reach out to police. But like I said, on the police side, they're like nurses, doctors, teachers, any professional want training to do their job well. And that's the piece, I think, if teachers are aware of that, just let police know that as you're becoming a trauma-sensitive school, and we want to offer this training or whatever resources Mm -hmm. to our officer so that we're singing off the same choir page. Yeah, well, I think it's a way of making sure that those resource officers belong to the school the same way that we would encourage them to train the lunch staff and the custodial staff and, you know, everybody together so that the school can be that community because even as adults, we need to belong. And some of the ways that groups that I've worked with, one, I worked in Middle Tennessee, and those police officers that were school resource officers, they had a car dealership that had wanted to give money specific to school resource officers. And for them to create a sense of belonging, they put wraps on each of the car of the school mascot of the school they serve in. In other words, police are finding creative ways to say to the school, we're part of you. That's the whole thing with this whole movement is that thinking outside the box and bringing us all together. I loved how you said singing the same song, you know, getting on the same pages, because at the very beginning, you talked about how in your community, you were sitting in that meeting going, don't you all talk to each other? How critical that need is and what change can happen when we all talk to each other. And it really is about community healing you know we are not isolated in these bubbles of the school the home the community it's like we all just need to be connected and working together and I think the child can see that and feel that and know who are the safe people caring for them and looking towards their future so that whole concept is very powerful well you know in my state under the Governor Haslam and his wife in 2016, they had a high initiative to become a trauma-informed state. And our Department of Education is one of the leaders of that from a commissioner level, even under our new governor. I know the leadership at the Department of Education pretty well. Right now, we're even working on a grant project together. 
And in many states that I'm working with, I see schools being a leader in bringing this content to town. And that's it, my experience. Mostly I see schools are having a curiosity about it because teachers don't need a white paper and a big lecture to know a kid's life outside of school matters. They know this, okay? We're just naming it now. And so with that said, I see that when schools are working with kids, we also have DCS, we have police, we have healthcare. So if one sector understands this, back to the, why don't we talk to each other? You know, gone are the days that one organization helps a family navigate hard places. We have six or eight different organizations. So therefore, you know, I talk a lot, do trainings on creating multi- disciplinary teams as best practice. And so I do think we're at a place where organizations are more coming out of silos. And I think that's a good thing. Becky, we could talk to you in the next week sometime. (laughs) Your experience is so rich and you sing the same songs that we sing. We love to get together with like-minded folks. Let's keep talking. Maybe you should come back sometime and we can talk even more. Sure. I would love that. And to echo your sentiment, Julie, honestly, when I am with folks like you and Ginger, I feel like it's a family reunion because (laughs) we truly see eye to eye, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate the work you all are doing. And I'm just honored that you'd reach out and I could be a part of this today. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Tell everybody again, how to find you and we'll make sure it gets in the show notes as well. Okay. Well, I have a website. It's just under my name, Becky Haas, H-A-A-S dot com. And you'll see types of trainings that I do, uh, pretty, you know, faith-based community, juvenile justice. And then you'll see testimonials of First Lady of Delaware, you know, people that I've worked with, school superintendents, and then articles that I publish and stuff like that. So a lot of people feel like they kind of know me from looking at my website before you even meet me. And again, though, with all transparency and humility, I'm more surprised than anyone that this happened in my life. I think what's making this movement different is it is kind of grassroots. Mm -hmm. It's the moms and the grandmas and the foster parents. Mm -hmm. And we know we can do better. And we know there's better information and better science. And I'm just thrilled. So people can find me through my website and there's a contact me page. Awesome. Thank you, Becky. Looking forward to the next time we get to talk. And I'm hoping that folks that are listening to this will reach out. Thank you. Thank you. Hi everyone, it's Julie, and I'm announcing that registration is open for the largest gathering of trauma-informed educators in the world, the Creating Trauma-Sensitive Schools Conference 2023. This upcoming conference will be held February 19th through 24th in 2023, and it will be an asynchronous hybrid event, which is a fancy way of saying that first we'll be at the Hilton of the Americas in downtown Houston on Sunday through Tuesday, February 19th through 21st. And then there will be a virtual component of the conference on Thursday and Friday, February 23rd and 24th. Now is the very best time to register during the early bird pricing. And this year, everyone who purchases an in-person ticket to come to Houston will also receive the two days of virtual conference for free. And that means you get the access to the virtual conference for the 90 days after. 
schools and organizations who bring 10 or more people can get an additional discount. And our staff is ready to help you with purchase orders or whatever it is you need to make registering groups easy. We have some amazing keynotes and special guests this year and over 70 workshops to choose from. You can check out more by visiting our conference webpage, www.attachedtrauma.org slash conference. Sign up soon. We'll see you at the sixth annual Creating Trauma-Sensitive Schools Conference. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. Our next episode is an important one for all teachers, parents, and anyone working with children impacted by trauma. Julie and Ginger will be discussing what we can do to combat secondary traumatic stress. A special thanks to Lorraine Schneider, our editor, and Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment Trauma Network, visit our website at attachedtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website through anchor.fm. I'm Danny Pancras. Thanks for listening.